Well, here we are again. Good to see you. Uh, we had a great uh, time this afternoon as well. It was great to connect with you. Um, and you confirmed that you are loosey-goosey. So I'll tell Jim Singleton that when I get back. Uh, but I've really appreciated the time that we've been able to interact and the conversations and uh, just been a great delight and encouragement to be, for me personally. I want to thank the musicians as well. You've just done a fabulous job. <laughs> and... <laughs> thank you. And I was, um, I was sitting there at the back just hearing Jim this morning and I, I got went back to my room afterwards and talked to my husband. I said, it just, I haven't heard good teaching like that. Just fabulous, insightful. I was just kind of hanging on every word. I've got lots of notes to percolate and think about. So, Jim, I don't know where you are if you're here, but thank you for all that you've been... Thank you. It's just, it was just wonderful, wonderful. just fabulous um, this morning. So uh, we have some more opportunity to think about the book of Genesis. And um, if you can turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is a key missions text. We are all very familiar with it. Uh, one of the things, as I've been looking at Genesis over the years... Um, reminded in this passage that the Hebrew structure places the purpose clause and in you or so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God is blessing Abraham so that and he has this missional um, goal from the very outset, so that it means that God's not simply blessing Abraham so that he might have a good, happy life, but so that he might be a vehicle of blessing. And I'm going to unpack this and a couple of other things about the context of the mission, uh, but I also just want to say at the outset that um, my own work in the book of Genesis, uh, this is a key text for me, but it's also a key life text. Because I decided, and my husband and I, as we thought about our own lives and about the place that we're living, is I said to the Lord a number of years ago, I don't simply want to know this theologically. I want to live this out in my life, in the way that I work in my community. And my own experience is the more that you're involved in Christian ministry, the more difficult it is to spend time with non-Christians. Because there's so many other demands and it's easy to say that it's more valuable to speak to 50 or 100 or 200 people than it is to speak to one person, right? And I'm so reminded and compelled by the fact that Jesus dined with sinners. And so as I think of this, this is kind of a key text for my own life. And 
for me, it's one of those key passages that I know this is the mission heart of God, and I think it runs throughout the Old Testament. But I want it also to be think through how does that impact and how does that affect the way that I live my life. And just to, to say and mention a couple of things at the outset, uh, my husband and I, uh, when we moved into Salem, we decided a few years ago that we would have a full party each year to reach out to our neighbourhood. Now, it's a New England neighbourhood. Everyone keeps to themselves, right? And, but we really had this on our heart, and so and October's a huge month in our city. Uh, so we thought, well, maybe we'll do, we thought we'll do a fall party, we'll do crockpots outside, it's getting cold, we can do um, the hot cider and this kind of thing. So, the first, so we decided to, some of the neighbours that we'd met when we moved in, we decided to put some flies out and said fall, you know, neighbourhood block party kind of thing in the fall. Well, we knew kind of just before we ended up having this party that it, we would, it was looking pretty lean. So at the last minute, we called up some of our other friends and said, OK, you've got to come over. We need a few bodies here right now. We ended up having three neighbours show up and one, one couple and one other person. And the couple said they had a great time. And they said, well, we thought you were trying to sell us something like Amway or something. <laughs> uh, we have, we've done it every year. We probably have between 25, 30 neighbours turn up. It has changed our neighbourhood. Uh, people move into the neighbourhood and all, my husband and I will go and introduce ourselves and say, oh, hi, by the way, I'm, you know, we live over here. And, oh, we've heard about this as a nice neighbourhood to move into. And so it has changed. We have people sometimes knocking on the door saying, could I borrow some coffee? It's, which is kind of unheard of for New England. <laughs> and not for Australia. Australia, you're in trouble if you don't knock on my door. <laughs> uh, and I say that because, and that's been something we've been developing over the years. I think I mentioned that I'm also part of a book club in my, it's just, we're in Lemon Street, it's just Lemon Street. That's, you gotta, if you want to come in the book club, you've got to live on Lemon Street. And we rotate and we go to different people's homes and we uh, read different um, articles, Time Magazine. I remember the first one I hosted, there was a Time Magazine on, Are Americans Happy? And it was, we talked about what makes you happy in life. Just, just, are we happy? What do you think about it? So, I'd say this at the outset because I'm not simply talking about theological, but I really do believe that this is an important text for how and I think especially as we think about those in leadership and pastors, and I think if we want to see our church, people in the church, connecting with non-Christians, we have to model it. We have to model it. They're busy too. They got, and so one of the things, of course, is it's, it's very helpful to use the things that you already have in your life that you can, instead of like I'm part of a couple of book clubs. I, I choose not to be part of a book club with a Christian group. There's one on campus, Seminary Wives, and I choose not to be part of that. To be, whether it's sports, whether it's kids, there's all kinds of opportunities for kids. Um, book clubs are often advertised somewhere in town. Libraries usually have them. These are just wonderful opportunities to begin long-term relationships um, with people. So I just mentioned that at the outset, and we may come back to it. So as we think about the call of Abraham... Uh, I want us to think for a few minutes about the context of the call. 
the context of the call. Now, when I was at the eco-conference, we talked about the context of barrenness. And I may pick up that a little bit, but I'm, that was the main thing we looked at, the, the fact that Sarah was barren. Okay. But I want to pick up another aspect of the context of this story. And the first thing I want to do as we begin is notice where the story begins. It begins in chapter 11, verse 27. We highlight chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, but, the, but there's no break in the Hebrew text there. It's and, and he said the Lord. Of course, the and he said should remind us of in the beginning, and, and he said, and he said, and he said. So it's a critical moment, but it doesn't begin in chapter 12, verse 1. It begins in chapter 11, verse 27, which says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. That word generations, the Hebrew word is toledoth. T-O-L-E-D-O-T, toledoth. And it is coming from the verb to bear or beget. And there are 10 of these in the book of Genesis, beginning in Genesis 2-4, chapter 5-1, 6-9. Remember yesterday, Noah was a righteous man. It says, this is the toledoth of Noah. And then it says he was righteous. So these, this is really the break in terms of the narrative. And this starts to put us in the context of terror becoming the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, it puts us back a little bit before Abraham in terms of Terah and his sons. And of course, Genesis, you could call it a book of my three sons, because that happens quite a lot. But uh, I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. So Joshua is giving us, this is a critical moment, he's about to die and he's warning God's people about watching that they don't worship idols and they're about to um, move forward in terms of uh, entrance into the land. And he recalls the history of God's people and in Joshua chapter 24 verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and I multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So the first thing as we start to look back at Genesis chapter 12 is we to understand the context is that Abraham is in a family of idol worshippers. We talked about idolatry two nights ago and we're going to see that what is the solution to the idolatrous heart and here we have the father of the Israelites and his context is idolatry. This term, other gods, is used in several places, notably Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, and it is one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods. And we learned the Ten Commandments this afternoon for those who are there. I will let others share that with you. 
So, you shall have no other gods before me. So, Abraham is living contrary to the commandments of God. He is an idol worshiper. Deuteronomy 6 verse 14, Moses warns the Israelites not to serve other gods of the nations. Deuteronomy 8.19, if you worship these gods, you're going to perish. Deuteronomy 11.16 and 28. Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses warns him and he says, if you worship other gods, even if someone, one of your own children, tells you to go and worship other gods, you are not to listen to them. And in fact, there is a stoning that is required even if someone from your own family tells you to go and worship other gods. It's a big deal. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 and 64, where God announces judgment against those who serve other gods. And he said, gods of wood and stone which he describes as an evil thing. Deuteronomy 31.20, other gods, worshipping other gods, constitutes breaking of the covenant. So, I mention this as we begin to think about Abraham, is that there he is an idol worshipper, and no surprises with what the children's books say. God's promise to Abraham. Abraham was a very good man. And God was pleased with him. You're going to go home and look at your children's books. There once was a good man named Abraham. And God had a special plan for him. Abraham was a good man who trusted God. He didn't trust God when God called him and he wasn't a good man. He was an idol worshiper. We need to keep this in mind when we're thinking about missions. Not only is he an idol worshiper, but he comes from the city of Ur. We also know in the Mesopotamian context, Ur, and there's some question whether the um, excavations done at Ur relates to this particular city, but it certainly reminds us of the culture, is that it is also a very religious place. There are temples there. So, so Abraham is living in an idolatrous place, in an idolatrous family, and before God comes to him, he's worshipping these idols. He is living in a very religious, remember we spoke about religious, that idolatry manifests itself in religious practices. And in fact, we know this from the city. So what is the solution to people living in the midst of idolatry? Acts chapter 7 verse 2 says that God turned up. The God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. So here we have God going 
to Abraham's family, we have divine presence. We have the appearance of God. He not only goes to him and appears to him, and it's interesting because in Genesis, God turns up all over the place. Ever thought about that? The incarnation is like, of course. God turns up face to face with people, divine presence appearing. But he doesn't only appear. But Galatians chapter 3 verse 8. Galatians 3 verse 8 talks about the fact that Abraham had the gospel proclaimed to him. We often like to think of the gospel coming from Genesis chapter 3. Right? When we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, I like to think of it coming, I don't, I don't mention that very much because it's not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But Galatians chapter 3 says that Abraham had the gospel proclaimed to him. And who proclaimed the gospel? God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis 12, it picks up verses 1 to 3, when God spoke to Abraham and said that in you all the nations will be blessed. And we're going to unpack what that means in terms of the gospel. And I just want to mention this at the outset because in our culture today, when we see what is taking place, and as I talk with Christians, I have the sense that they want to retreat. Right? They, want to, they don't like what is going on. And I get that. But they want to retreat and kind of stay with each other. I am reminded of this when I think about Salem. When my husband and I moved into Salem about 10 years ago, I cannot tell you how many Christians said to us, why are you moving into, why are you moving into Salem? They not only said, why are you moving into Salem, but we heard it said over and over, you know what, I really don't like that city. I actually try not to drive through it. Recently, Salem was in, has been in the paper because Gordon College, next door to Gordon-Conwell, uh, the president, some of you may have heard it, but the president wrote a, um, signed a letter to Obama with several, I think 30 other Christian leaders, and uh, asking for exemption for the anti-discrimination policy because of it being a Christian institution, and they wanted to hire people based on their community life statement. It was leaked to the press, and it blew up in all the papers. The mayor of Salem 
immediately came out and said, uh, we don't want to have anything to do with Gordon College. They had run history programs in the city for years and years. Um, history programs, they had run... Um, some, I think met someone who said there, they knew of someone who used to be in the plays, and the mayor came out and said, we don't want to be part of Salem. We don't want you to be part of it. The Lynn School District also did the same thing. But what else happened was a good friend of ours who lives in Salem, someone else was moving into the area, looking at moving into the area, and he was with a conversation with some, and the other people said, oh, don't go into Salem. You should hear what's happening right now. And the reason I say this is because if God did that with Abraham, there would be no redemptive story here. Because God is going into the places of idolatry. And I think as we start to look at our own context, we need to come back to the story of Abraham and we need to be reminded that God's not calling a good man but he, God is going into the place of idolatry to proclaim the gospel to him. And I think this gives us hope that the God can do something, right? Because you think of it, why is it that we want to retreat from our culture? I think one is we want to protect our kids, right? We want to kind of, and we do that with our boys. You, we, we face some situations, we want to kind of pull them in. But we've got to learn to engage with the culture and be provoked by what we see as Paul was in Acts chapter 17 when he was provoked with the idols. And I think we need to have a robust view of the creator God who can do something. So God himself comes into this, goes into the city and he proclaims the gospel to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to pick this up in a moment in terms of the meaning of it. So second thing I want to mention about Abraham. So first thing is when he is called by God, he is an idol worshiper. Second thing I want to mention about Abraham is that he is a sinner, and I don't mean to be dwelling on this all the time, but I'm just trying to get us back to the origin of the stories so that we therefore remember our own story and we have hope for our culture. Right? So thinking about the fact that Abraham is a sinner, and now I want to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 is the story where Abraham doesn't have a child yet. Remember, God's made promises to him to have children. He doesn't have a child yet. And in chapter 15, verse 2, he says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And God basically says to him, Look, Eliezer's not going to be your heir, but one coming forth from your own loins. Verse 5, and God took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And then verse 6, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
So why did I quote this passage when I'm saying that Abraham was a sinner? This is about him being declared righteous. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, gives us some more information, and I want to turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 tells us what Abraham's circumstances were when God justified him. Romans chapter 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Of course, in Romans chapter 1, Paul has established that both Jew and Gentile are guilty. And he says, well, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 15.6. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay, so what does this, what does this mean? So Paul is using the working analogy to say that if you work, you do something, then your justification, your being declared righteous, is kind of what's due to you. But if you don't work, you're not doing something, but you are believing, then it is a gift that God is giving you because you're not working for it. Okay, So it's grace. This is picking up the theme of grace. But Paul goes on further to say, this is the the important um, term here, but to the one who does not work, he's picking up Paul. Paul's picking up the fact that Abraham, when God makes this promise, he's looking at the stars, he's not doing anything. He's not doing anything in obedience to the law, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Paul is describing Abraham as ungodly. Now, ungodly sounds like a kind of a sort of a nice way of putting it. Let me give you some references. This uh, Greek term, asebes. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly, which is to do with sinners. 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, profane, and those who kill their fathers. 1 Peter 4.18, and if it was with difficulty that the righteous is saved, notice he's righteous, what will become of the godless man? So Abraham is being described as ungodly. 2 Peter 2.5 For if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Paul is using the term ungodly here to describe Abraham at the moment of his justification. 
Second Peter 2 verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly. So it's a pretty negative term. Okay. I want to take this just a step further. The term ungodly, asebase, is the Greek word that is used to translate the opposite of righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 25 is an example. In other words, we talked last night about the righteous. Remember tzaddik? And wicked. Tzaddik and wicked. In a law court, either someone's in the right or they're in the wrong. Remember, Noah was in the right, Sadiq. The Hebrew word for being in the wrong is called rasha. And the Greek translation is asebes. Okay. So Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, is ungodly. Now take this a step further. In the Sodom and Gomorrah story, when Abraham intercedes, there is the language of the righteous and the wicked. The word rasha for wicked is translated as ungodly. Which means when Abraham is interceding on behalf of the city of Sodom, it is not that he is a righteous person speaking about those wicked people at Sodom. He is an ungodly person who has been declared in the right by faith. That means that when he intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, he is one who can identify with them while also being declared in the right. By grace. Why do I think this is important? I think when we look at what's going on in our culture today, the tendency in Christian circles is to do the us and them. Right? The story of Abraham here is saying, I have been described like them, but I am now justified by faith. And it's a gift. And I think this makes a difference when we think of how we approach people. Because we are coming as one beggar on a journey. And I think we need to remember our story of origin going back to Abraham and also our own story as we, as we interact with people to be interacting in grace. And I think about this with our, our two boys, our oldest son, um, his room is always just an absolute disaster. I mean, it's like, it's chaos in there. 
absolute chaos. Now, when I was a kid growing up, my room was always chaos as well. My husband's is like everything's, all his socks are lined up, mine are all stuffed in the drawer. That's, his are all lined up. Right? When we do house renovation stuff, my husband does house renovation, you know, when he paints, he draws the, the duct tape and the line, and I do it by sight, right? That's... And when my husband looks at my son's room, he's like, I mean, he's just like, but I get it. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. He's artistic. <laughs> right? I get it. I've got compassion when I see him with his room. Because I know my own story, what I was like. And my husband struggles with that because he was never like that. And I think when we think about non-Christians today and all the stuff that goes with it, we've got to remember our story of origin, both our original story of origin and the story of Abraham. Is that where God leaves him? Absolutely not. But it is the starting point. Ezekiel chapter 16 also describes the origin. Of Israel. And this is what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Verse 3, and thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. So he's talking about the origin, but it's going back to Abraham. And he says, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloth. And he's talking about this young newborn that has been thrown out. This is he's going back to Abraham. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and I saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. And again, it's reminding us of God calling out Israel and looking at their origin. No one had compassion on them, but he did. And again, as we've thought about the children's books, that's why I think it's so problematic. Because we think that God calls good people, and these stories start to become ours. Right? These stories start to become our origin, and I think the origin of the story is very important. Next thing I want to mention, going back to Genesis 15. I want to mention a little bit about the faith that is required. We've been talking a lot about resurrection. And I want to just unpack the resurrection faith here. So, Abraham is ungodly. 
God comes to him and he's going to proclaim the gospel to him. And what is going on in terms of his faith? What is it that God requires? And I like to think about Abraham in terms of having resurrection faith. Resurrection faith here. It goes back to, again, the belief in God the creator. Because what's happening here in the story? We know as we think about the big picture of Genesis that in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, remember it says that Sarah was barren. So God is not only calling a family who are idol worshippers and he's proclaiming the gospel, but he's also going to proclaim that you're going to have many descendants. And he's choosing a barren and elderly woman. Because it is going to impact and it's going to define both the faith and the children. What do we mean by this? So in Genesis chapter 15, you know that at this point they haven't, had any, they haven't had any kids. And he says, how is this going to happen? Abraham looks out towards the scars and he believes that God is going to give them children. Paul picks this up and he says, Abraham believes that God can bring life out of that which is dead because he looks at the deadness of his own body and he looks at the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he's got to believe in the creator God. Genesis chapter 1. Because it's only the creator God who can bring life out of that which is dead. And so God looks at that faith and says to him, he reckoned that faith to him as though it was an act of righteousness. Because he doesn't have the works of righteousness and he is the faith is central. We also know from Romans that that faith that Abraham has is not a one-time faith. It's not way back at conversion. It Because when Paul quotes it in Romans 4, it's when he's 100 years old. And I also think as we think about mission today, I think our God is too small. Because I think what it is going to require of us is to believe that God can bring life out of that which is dead. When we think of individual people that we know and we think of where the culture is moving, but we can also talk about it at church level and we think of the places in which there seems to be less life. Can God bring life into those places? Abraham, I don't know about you, but you think about he's looking at his wife and he's thinking, there's not much chance, honey. (laughs) Out of all those years. But he has to believe in what God can do. 
My husband and I feel this way about being in Salem. It's tough. It's, it's a tough place. And we, this is why I loved what Jim was talking about this morning in terms of this counter-community because um, and seeing what God does with you talk about leaven and about um, this alternative community which ultimately in Genesis is creation. Because the children who are going to be born to Abraham are going to be the work of God. And as we think of our own ministry, that the fruit and that the children spiritual, it is only the work of God. And God wants to show this to Abraham and he does it through his barren wife who cannot do it. She cannot have kids. I couldn't have children. And uh, it's got to be something that God does. We felt like God gave us two boys. I mean, we felt like... and. I got to a point where I started to say, maybe God even prevented me from having children so that we would have to... He had his hands on these two boys. Even before, I mentioned about our prayer journal that, that the week before, but even before that, they moved... The boys were actually living at Gordon Conwell in a foster family. We didn't know about it, and they'd sent emails out to about 100 people to pray for a Christian family for these boys. And even before they moved onto campus, this young couple had them and they um, were moving onto campus and they told the dean of students and said, we'd really like to have, the, we've heard about these two boys, we'd really love to have them on campus. And the dean of students, she said, well, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We don't have a policy for that. She said, God woke her up in the middle of the night and said, take the boys in. They're our boys. God, it's the work of God. And God sometimes uses difficult times to show us, right? We want to do things ourselves. We've got it in control. And God uses the difficult times. And God used, I think about Sarah. She's like 70. She's had year after year. Look how Hagar mocks at her. Remember that? Hannah is mocked in the ancient world. And yet God said, that's just what I want a barren woman, because when the children come, you will know that it's from me. And the children that come to Abraham and Sarah are the fulfillment of the creation story, Genesis 1.28. Because in Genesis 1.28, we have the verbs be fruitful and multiply, which is the area I've worked on my dissertation. I won't go on to that too long now. But be fruitful and multiply. These verbs are in the cow in Hebrew. They're regular, ordinary Hebrew verbs. And I think the creation blessing is not fulfilled in Genesis 1 to 11. And you're waiting to see how it's going to be fulfilled. These two verbs turn up in the promises to Abraham. I will cause you to be fruitful. I will cause you to multiply. They are in the hifil, and God is the subject, not human beings. They are causative. We talked about the resurrection this morning, about God raising up Jesus, and the causative turns up in 2 Samuel 7 as well. I will cause the seed of Abraham, seed of David, 
to raise, be raised. And it underscores from the beginning of the story of the God using these unlikely people, unlikely circumstances, but it's underscoring that the mission of God is accomplished by God. And we respond in faith. We respond in faith and we have to believe that God is the God who brings life out of that which is dead. And this comes back to the belief in the creator God. Right? Abraham, and then this is the Abraham who then walks in faith. And then that's when you come to the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is this promise of blessing to the nations that he is beginning to see realized. And it is through intercession. Been a couple of great articles written on it through intercession that he is going to then be the vehicle of the blessing to the nations. Big picture, of course, is Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, these people received the promises, but not having seen the fulfillment of them. Because God makes promises to Abraham that in you and in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And Jim has been speaking about the centrality of Jesus. And we looked at that a little bit this afternoon for those who were there at the workshop about the whole Old Testament narrative pointing toward Jesus. And I th as we think of this missional call, I love the fact that when you get to the book of Galatians, Paul picks up this theme of blessing going out to the nations and it is the cross that is the game changer in terms of mission. Because he's going to say, and the promise to Abraham and his seed. And Paul picks up the fact that in Genesis, the promise to Abraham and to his seed, that word seed is singular. And he sees ultimately, of course, in the Old Testament, you see some of the nations coming in. You see hints of it. But once you come to the New Testament, it's like this world turning upside down. This is indeed the fulfillment of the promise. And of course, when we think of our, we are the recipients of that creational blessing. So as I think of this wonderful story that God is the one who is doing it in our own lives and in the ministry places that we're in, it's the causative God who is going to accomplish the work that he has set for us. Uh, and I think our part in this journey is to be those who proclaim the gospel and who go out into those hard places. The places of idolatry, the places of Ur, where God went leading, places of Salem, places where you have ministry. As I've talked with you, I sense some of you are a bit beaten down. That's what, I, that's what I sense. Some of you are a bit beaten down being in tough places of ministry. And my prayer for you is that 
this time of this week would be a time of encouragement being back in the word and a reminder that this is God's work. It's his missional work and let him do his good work and surprise us with it. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. As we think of the story of Abraham, Father, we thank you that you appeared to Abraham. We think of his family and the idols that may have been set up in their houses. And we thank you for your word that was spoken to him and a word of hope and a word of life. And we thank you that that very gospel message that was proclaimed to Abraham, that we, in the mystery of the way that you have worked, we are the recipients of it. And that we benefit from that very gospel that was proclaimed to him. And Father, I thank you that you are the God who brings life out of that which is dead. And we think of Sarah's barrenness. And Father, only you could do that. And Father, I pray for each person here. Lord, you know the difficult places of ministry. And Lord, you know the places where people have felt beaten down and worn out. Lord, I pray that you would bring encouragement. And Lord, that we would rejoice in you and we would know that you are indeed the creator God and that you are doing your surprising work in our midst. And I pray that you would bless your people, stir their hearts to have hope in you. And Father, we thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we thank you that as you made promises to them that we can call upon you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because you are faithful to your promises. So cause us to be a blessing for your glory. Amen. Oh. Questions? <laughs> no, we had lots of questions this afternoon. Discussions, it jumps over the Tower of Babel. What yes. does it add to the narrative? Why is it in there? So the Tower of Babel, um, yeah, the Tower of Babel, um, uh, human beings are um, trying to build a name for themselves. Uh, it, it certainly anticipates Abraham and the, that God's going to make a name for him. So it's a human endeavor. Uh, and if you know that chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel, chapter 10 is the Table of Nations, chapter 11, they are out of chronological order, dyschronology. So the Table of Nations, where you have the 70 nations, is the result of the judgment of chapter 11. 
A number of scholars argue that the creation blessing is fulfilled in the table of nations. I argued against that view in my dissertation. I get it's not fulfilled. There's a genealogy that's given that's reversal kind of that gives priority to Shem. So, um, so the Tower of Babel, I think, is coming. Von Rad argued it's this climactic moment in the story. I don't think it's climactic, but I think it's people trying to join together um, and to build a name. It's fortification. Some say it's trying to build um, kind of a worship building. I don't think that's the case, like a ziggurat. I'm not so convinced about that. But I think um, it's this independence autonomy against God. They try and build a name for themselves. And the counter to it is that God's going to make Abraham's name great. Uh, and the other interesting thing with Babel is right before the Babel story and afterwards is the genealogy of Shem. Shem meaning name. So the people are trying to make a Shem. God already has his Shem that he is working through. Yeah. Oh, great. You know, we're just really appreciating how you pronounce some of these names. Uh, you're like Isaiah. And oh, I know, Isaiah. Hey, well, I got, I got a really weird uh, question uh, just about, I'm wondering if you can tell us what Jewish scholars are doing with this text about uh, all nations will be blessed through you. I mean, they, these people know this text. Uh, I remember uh, hearing about some Jewish scholars that actually were so grateful for the Christian church in uh, seeing the church as a fulfillment of this blessing, that some people were following the Jewish God uh, in mm, a way that could see. But, but I, I, just, I, I don't know if you, you, I, you, you know, must I don't, know what some of them I, I mean, I know Jewish scholars in terms of, um, you know, Genesis um, commentary Jewish scholars, but I don't know kind of current. I, um, I have a good friend of mine who were at Hebrew Union, uh, she's just finishing a dissertation on the priest, priestly garments, actually just last week. So they would be able to tell you, but I don't know the current. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, they... Um, yeah, I, I, I probably... I don't know the current. Um, someone may already know that here, but... No, it's a good question. In your encounter with um, pastors and the encouragement that you've given to proclaim and go out... Yeah. That I resonate with that. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of getting out of the church building, out of our little Christian ghetto that, yeah, I, that you're I th aware of? I think, I think what we've done in the past is we've set up programs, right? And we want to invite people to church or invite them to things. Um, I think we have to reverse that and go out into people's... We've got to go out into... Um, Build relationships with people. I think one of the ways that you can do that is by... I mean, it takes time. That's the, that's the tough thing. It just takes time. But, um, I mean, as an example, um, we have been... I'd mentioned about our neighbourhood. Last um, summer, um, one of the ladies in our neighbourhood, I was out watering my flower pots at the front because it was summer just for about two months. Uh, and she asked me what I was doing, and I told her something about Noah, probably, or whatever. And, and she said, oh, 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 that's right, that's right. Now, you've, um, you've uh, you know, you're into that. That's right. I'd like to talk to you about it. I've been reading The Purpose Driven Life. You know, I've, I kind of like to live a good life, but I thought I should try and think about spiritual stuff, too. 
She said, would you like to? And I said, well, yeah, we could have a glass of wine. We could go and chat about it. And she's like, and I said, that would be great. So we went and had a conversation. And what was so fascinating with this particular friend was um, she had been sick about probably about a year and a half beforehand. She'd had some major surgery. And my husband happened to pop by her place at that time. And she was out front and said this to, she's about to go into surgery. And my husband said to her, oh, can I pray for you? Now, my husband's not, he's New Jersey, he's kind of not touchy-feely, like, you know. And, and she said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. She told me, she said, I thought he meant, I'll go home and pray for you. <laughs> she said, but he meant, like, there. She said, and she said to me, it was the loveliest prayer I've ever heard. She said, what meant something to me was that he listened to my conversation. And he prayed about the stuff I'd been telling her. So um, we, had a, we had a great conversation that time. And we, she's one of the women who's part of our book club. Um, and these are ongoing conversations. So I think, I think neighborhood is one key area. And I think other parts of things you're involved in, if kids are in soccer or baseball, connecting with parents, if it's, um, if it's book clubs, if it's knitting, I can't knit to save my life. But... If knitting's your thing, knitting, or whatever it may, or if it's at the gym, whatever it is. Um, and I, I, I am so convinced that it's got to come from leadership. Because we've got, the people in the church have got to see it modelled. And it's not, I don't think the days are programs. I think, and it's one-on-one -on -one connecting with people. I would, I would do that a lot more if I had more time. I mean, I, as in, I'd be quite happy doing that full time. Yeah. That's, what about the proclamation piece? So, your proclamation piece, yeah. I think, um, I think proclamation piece, uh, and Jim mentioned that about asking questions. I think that's a wonderful way to be thinking about this. Um, I know, for example, we've talked about Jim Singleton. I know his wife, um, Sarah, has done this a lot with people. And I'm still, I'm not quite as good at asking the questions as she's very gifted at that. And I think asking questions is very important as well. Um, and then um, the proclamation, of course, there's, a, there's the aspect within the church of the proclamation. And then there's the individual relationships beginning where people are. So I, I, I find... Um, I mean, it takes a long time. They, the book, um, I Once Was Lost by the two InterVarsity guys, say about two years, they say before you start to have the, the distrust to curiosity is what they say is the next stage. People start asking questions. And being willing to be, I think in the culture we're a bit intimidated. I think we feel like we're not allowed to have our own views. And I, and I think we need to learn to engage and be able to love people, but also have the conviction that we have our own views. So. Kind of uh, combining that in your area of study, um, how, do you, how do you personally respond when either an unbeliever from your neighborhood or, or even somebody you maybe meet in church says yes. to you, oh, you don't really believe those stories in Genesis, do you? I yeah. mean, you take those literally? Yeah. Uh, what is your response when someone throws um, that at you? I mean, I think the question I do get a lot more so is... Um, I think there's a low view of the Bible itself and a lack of understanding of the historicity. 
I think that's that, and this happened with this one conversation with this lady, and I, and I just jump in and go, oh, I read all these texts about King Hezekiah, and I translated them, and you know, and they said, oh, really? That must be so interesting. So I, I think the history of it. Um, I think there's lots of documentation of Old Testament history, and I think we need to be doing this a lot more in the church, picking up the archaeology, just throwing it in there when we have it. Um, I have recently bought um, replica tablets of um, like the Babylonian 586 destruction of Jerusalem, replica tablets, Sennacherib's attack in Jerusalem 701, the big, I read the Taylor Prism, I've read it at Cambridge. And it talks about King Hezekiah. It talks about the attack. So I, I now in Old Testament survey, just this fall, I'm going to start bringing them to class. I'm not going to bring them here anytime. <laughs> My suitcase is full. But, but I, because I think, I think that's another area where we're getting a bit beaten down on. And I don't think it's the truth of it. So um, I'm trying to introduce that. We want to try and think through how to introduce archaeology into the Casket Empty project because I think there's a low view of the historicity of the Old Testament. Yeah. Just as a follow-up, can you suggest uh, books or resources? As a follow-up, can you suggest books or resources that go into like current developments? Because you know, yeah, the only thing that makes it on television is the minimalist. Yeah, stuff. that's right. There's a book by Hearth, um, um, Archaeology of the Old Testament. That's a good one. Um, and Jim may know some in terms of with New Testament, but Archaeology of the Old Testament uh, by Hearth is great. Um, there's even things like the, um, the Pritchard, Ancient Near Eastern Texts. There's, there's two books of abridged versions. Um, so Ancient Near Eastern Texts by Pritchard. Um, there's one volume, but there's also a compilation of, of texts by very inexpensive. But I think just... Whenever you're doing anything on the historical books, any like Genesis is more difficult. It's not like there's going to be archaeology there. There's there's um, flood stories, Gilgamesh and Atrahasis, and so on. But anytime you're dealing with anything historical, I think either Old or New Testament to bring in the uh, bring in just even if it's a couple of lines, making that part of your preaching, because I think in today's day and age. We, we think they're all mythical stories. I mean, I've heard uh, people, non-Christians, who have said things about... And I'm like, oh, you know, it's just... It's different if or whether Adam exists or not. That's a different ballgame. But a lot of the historical text is very good biblical evidence. There's not for everything, of course. But where there is, use it. Yeah. you ever thought about becoming Presbyterian? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, question. You're talking about the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Uh, my interpretation was the ziggurat that got destroyed uh, and because they were building, you know, to reach the heavens. Yeah. And the ancient culture there on the top of large buildings. Yeah. It was a temple where they yeah. worshipped. And can you comment on that? Yeah. So that is a common view. Um, the, the, um, the expression... Um, the tower and the expression in the heavens, um, both of those are used um, as they're about to enter into the land. When they look at the inhabitants of the land, they have high towers and they go up into the heavens. So it's also a language used of fortification. So you, you have to make that choice. Is it, is it a religious building that they're trying to seek God or is it fortification? And I think it's fortification. I don't see anything else 
that it's evidence of a religious trying to seek God. I think it's fortification, lest we be scattered. Scattering is a term that happens when you get defeated by your enemies. So. Could you comment on the uh, Genesis 15 uh, covenant ceremony? Was it a precursor to Christ's blood or was it a good southern barbecue? Yes, so um, the Genesis 15 um, ceremony, um, do, you, do you mean the, the, the whole curse? Is that what you're trying to, with the cross, with the, may this be my... The blood sacrifice. Yeah, so Genesis 15, um, cutting of the covenant because you have animals being cut. God is the one who's passing between the pieces. Some people, based on a couple of Near Eastern potential parallels, also say that by passing between the pieces, you are saying, may this be my body cut up, kind of dismembered, and some therefore say it's anticipating the cross. Um, it could be, it fits theologically, we just don't have the strong textual, the parallels are not quite exactly the same and we don't have the strong textual to connect it. So in, in effect is God then bringing a curse upon himself or pronouncing that he will somehow. I'd like to see some other connection with the New Testament. I think the curse of the curse, of course, Galatians chapter 3, is picking up the Mosaic Covenant curse because of failure to obey the law. A little bit um, earlier, but the... So you talked about uh, the historicity of the Old Testament. Yeah. And Genesis is a different deal. Yeah. So do you see Genesis as metaphoric stories that are there to point us toward capital T truth rather than scientific record of historic yeah. truth. Yeah. Or so probably something more nuanced. Yes. So yes, maybe something more nuanced in between. But so I think when I mention about Genesis is different, I, and I'm, I'm particularly thinking about the archaeological record, um, it, you know, when you think about King Hezekiah, or King Jehu, when you think about the black obelisk where he bows down. I mean, you've got, you've got a lot of archaeological material once you hit the period, really. David, recently the Tel Dan inscription, well, not that recent now, but... So kingship, so that's, in that sense, I mean the archaeological record is very strong in comparison to the early chapters of Genesis. I will mention a book called... This is, this is one of my top, top Old Testament books, recent ones. Kenneth Kitchen, the, on the reliability of the Old Testament. Kenneth Kitchen, the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, I'll come back to the Genesis one, but this book is fabulous. He is um, an Egyptologist um, in the UK, um, and this book is really the... You know, he's, he's got to be in his 80s now. So this was really the, his career's work. Any difficult problem in the Old Testament, he addresses it. And it's very good. So coming back to Genesis, I think in scholarship you find people saying that Genesis 1 to 11 is different genre than Genesis 12 to 50. So that's one piece. And I don't think you can make that case for Genesis 1 to 11 being different genre than 12. I think you have the Toledoth formula that covers them all, that, that these are the generations of. I think there's no clear break between Genesis 11 and 12. So I think 
But I do think if you look at the early chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and 2 and then 3, the genre is of a different kind. It's not the same as then Abraham went forth from the land of Canaan. So I think recognizing that. So um, I think I mentioned to the afternoon group, you have high poetic literature in Genesis chapter 1. And in a sense, scholars really haven't been able to come to terms with exactly the genre of it. It's quite unique. But what we don't want to do is assume that poetical means non-historical. Okay? Uh, a friend of mine is just finishing off her PhD in Exodus 14 and 15, accounting the Exodus from Egypt. One is poetic and one is in historical narrative. They are both referring to the same thing, the Exodus from Egypt. So poetical is a different genre, but it doesn't necessarily mean lack of historicity. So I think that's the thing. Um, so I think Genesis 1 to 2 is highly poetic. Um, I think you have multiples of 7 being used, and it was good, and it was good 10 times, and he said, and lots of other multiples of 7 and 10. Um, I think when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, it is recapitulation. It's retelling the story. Um, but uh, I don't think it's a creation of a seven-day, 24-hour time period or whatever. I think it's... And if you think of the book of Genesis, two chapters about creation, 48 chapters about human relationships. Right? Not a lot. We, we think the whole book's about creation... And I think that's just the springboard for the relationship and the human divine. So you think about Job, how much is about creation material? Much more in Job than there is in Genesis. So, but is it establishing that God is the creator God? Absolutely. Um, I think it's using very general terms. Living creatures is as broad as you can imagine. Right? Catch all. Um, but I do think that that there is a special creation with humanity. A divine intervention. That doesn't mean that there are not Neanderthals and you can think about the whole living creatures being very broad, but if you only see human beings in terms of an evolutionary development, there's all kinds of issues coming up with image of God, sin, death, not to mention, of course, Genesis chap uh, Romans chapter 5 and how that fits. So I think it, is, it gives a lot of room within the narrative, but I think it is pointing to a special creation with Adam. Can their DNA be similar? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be unique DNA, but I think it's a unique moment within this creation story of the creation of human beings. So, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on um, the idea that has gained, I think, a lot of popularity that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was a sin of inhospitality. Yes. What you think about that? Yeah, so um, another light topic. No. <laughs> uh, so, 
um, the, the key, the Sodom and Gomorrah, um, there are issues, there are overtones of hosp hospitality. Hospitality is important in the book of Genesis. Uh, but the key term is um, in 19.5, um, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The verb yada, to know. That's really the key. Um, and I, I think I've got, there are 16 occurrences out of, I don't know how many hundreds, where yada, to know, means sexual relations. And guess what? A lot of those are in Genesis. Adam knew his wife. And they have a baby, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, so I think um, I think the it is sexual. I think that's what it is. Um, you have the statement in chapter thirteen that the the statement about wickedness. But again, when I talk about wickedness now, now we want to temper that. With, that's the term that's used to describe Abraham in the Greek translation when he's justified. So again, we, that's what I'm saying. I want to be careful with the us and them. But at the same time, I do think it is about, um, it is sexual. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Carol, uh, think with me for a minute about Genesis, or, uh, excuse me, Galatians 3.8 that you pointed us yeah. to. Most remarkable use of the word scripture here. I, I know. Um, Paul though, says, yes. the scripture foresaw that God justifies the righteous by faith. And now the scripture is the uh, subject of this verb, proclaimed to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Yeah. So this is a most remarkable use, isn't it? Yes. He's, he's using scripture um, uh, either loosely, but I don't think Paul's doing that, as a circumlocution for, for God, or yes. he's deifying Scripture, right? Yes. What would you do with this? And then I think, um, if I remember rightly, in um, when uh, Sarah says, drive out, when Sarah says in chapter 4, drive out Ishmael, I think it's, and what does the Scripture say? I think it's the same with, uh, let me just see if it's, what does they say? Let me have a look. <clears throat> Let's see. Do you, what does it say? Do you have a verse there? I don't... Just trying to see. Uh, um, oh, well, yes. Verse um, 30. 13. Sorry, 30. Galatians 4.30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So you have... Reference, not quite this, the same, but that same, but the fact that it's also Sarah's words, right, driving out and then um, pointing back to it. So anyway, that was the other passage that comes to mind. But yeah, there is, there is an identification with the Scripture and with God. Yeah, I mean, so it, it does elevate, uh, elevate it because God is the one who's actually speaking, obviously in chapter twelve, but um, elevating the role of Scripture, I think. What do you, what's your thought with it? Well, I, I think that that's maybe the best answer. It yeah. almost seems it could be a circumlocution for a providential. Right. It's just written into the record. Yeah. 
This yep. is the way it had to be. Yep. It has, I can't believe Paul made a mistake here. Yeah. But it is a most Wrong. unusual yep. use of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it probably isn't because it's not passive voice. Hmm. But, I mean, that's, that's a great comment. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I think that it's a little bolder than that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I think of later, too, um, uh, another thing in Galatians that has um, chapter 4, verse 29, when it says about Isaac being born of the Spirit. You know, it doesn't say that in Genesis, but it's picking up kind of this greater reality that's taking place with um, Isaac as well. It seems to me that this underscores your point here, yeah. that this narrative yeah. is not dependent upon Abraham being a good Boy Scout. Yeah. It's, it's in the nature of God's work. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I used the illustration of the word well, for instance, because usually they'll go, they'll base it on a frequency mm -hmm. number and say, yeah. well, the most frequent usage is obviously the, the, the real meaning of the word. Right. I said, suppose 500 or 1,000 years from now, they want to know what the word well means, meant in our society. And, uh, well, what is it? It's a hole you dig in the ground to get water out of or... Uh, is it you're not sick? Yeah. Or is it, well, a throwaway word, probably yeah. the most frequently used. Yes. And what kind of argument would be that be then? I mean, they'd be way off base if they said, yeah. well, the most frequent usage is obviously the correct one. Yeah. So, so to try to say that, uh, that no, uh, it's used so clearly in, yeah. in a sexual sense there. Well, and I think certainly the context, because it's used so commonly in Genesis exactly. in the book itself. Exactly. Yeah. Very common, yeah. Yeah. Starting with the Genesis 15 yeah. uh, example that you mentioned where Abraham believed yep. and then God uh, reckoned it as righteousness. And I wonder if you'd do a little word study comment on that in light of the um, maybe the, the modern phenomenon where belief is kind of understood as a intellectual assent to a uh, sort of a doctrinal formula. Right. Yeah, so I think um, the verb here is amen, where we get our amen from. So, uh, and I think in this particular comment um, context, um, you know, the believing is, and of course Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4, I think Abraham is required to believe God can do something that he can't do himself. Um, so that's why I talk about the whole resurrection idea, the resurrection faith. He's, ask, he's believing that God can do something for him that he can't. 
And, and of course, um, uh, here we have it being the idea of without works, but James is going to pick up that it's more than kind of mental assent uh, because James, of course, is going to pick up um, believing and connecting it to Genesis chapter 22 and seeing that it's faith with kind of works. Okay, So, so that requires, it's not simply mental assent, but it's, it's you know, a working faith, if you like. So you've got Paul that says it's without works, which I think is works of law, Torah, and then you have works as in... It's meant to be active, right? The faith is meant, he said, the demons believe, but it's meant to be active. And then um, Paul quote, uh, sorry, James quotes the two examples is um, Abraham in Genesis 22 and then Rahab, who's a prostitute, which is interesting with her works being works of faith. So there's this um, completion of his works. There's an activity of um, faith. This is why I mentioned that you've got both Genesis 12 and then 22, which requires Abraham is obedient. So there's an active aspect of his faith there, which James is picking up. And I think it's also a belief in the creator kind of idea of resurrection as well there, because when he goes to offer up Isaac, you know, he says, we'll go up to the mountain and we will come back. You know, so he's somehow expecting, and I think Hebrews 11 picks this up. Um, so, um, yeah, does, does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the other interesting thing in the, the big, I thought you were going to ask the question because there's a big debate about the whole role of faith and works and whether it's faithfulness here versus believing in, in God. Right? That's a big issue I don't know if that's within your circles as well, but that's a huge issue whether you know, Noah is said to be faithful and Abraham, it is his faith and obedience that people have picked. Some have said it's faithfulness rather than faith without works. That's another. We could go down that road if we need to, but I don't want to go there if we don't need to. <laughs> um, this is a little broad question, but do you recommend the New Living Translation to unchurched people that are first exploring the Bible? The ESV, the NIV, is there probably a translation that, that you really like and recommend probably, for the church? Probably NIV, um, if you're wanting to get something that's accessible. Yep. I don't want to go too far with the, the... I think the New Living was the one, Noah had no faults, you know, so. How do you interpret the word yar in Genesis chapter 1, you know, day? In Hebrew? Oh, yom? Yom, I'm sorry, Yom. Yeah. Yom. So the question is, how do you interpret um, Yom? Uh, so Yom, like Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the word Yom, um, again, if you do a word study on it, it's like 99% of the time it means a 24-hour time period. Uh, but in Genesis 2 verse 4, um, Genesis 2 verse 4, it gets picked up, um, uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, on the day they were, on the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven, uh, based on the day structure in chapter 1, those are on two different days, so you already have a day in Genesis 1, and then you have a day in Genesis 2-4, which is more than one day, 
Uh, you also have the language of day being used in, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, and that brings up another topic, but uh, day can be used with reference to event. So, so I think if you can, I think you can, you, it's appropriate to take day as a longer period of time. I think that, I think in my mind, I think Genesis 1 is um, like the, the framework hypothesis. I don't know that the whole, the days matching, I think that really makes a lot of sense for me. I think we have too often read Genesis simply chronologically. A lot of recapitulation going back. And I see uh, days one and four, days two and five, six and whatever, three and six. There's those parallel kind of realms. Um, God's working day. So I don't take it as a 24-hour day. What's that? Just to go back to that, Genesis 1 basin is so hot. Um, <laughs> I've always really thought that the question that Genesis 1 is answering is not how, but who. You know, not how did it all happen, but yeah. who did all this? Yeah. And that seems to be the, to me, is that, is that a, a, a valid yeah, understanding I do, of what Genesis I, I do think, um, I, I do think, Genesis 1 is using very broad strokes. Uh, I mean, you look at the book of um, um, Joel with the locusts. There's four different types of locusts in Joel. I mean, this is very broad strokes in Genesis 1. Um, and so I think it is establishing that God is the creator God. I think that's what it is establishing. And it is establishing that the idols are not God's. Remember, because we think about the sun and the moon, you know, I mean, these are, these, I, when I did Akkadian, you, when you have the sun god, it has a little symbol of um, Dingir, this deity symbol before it. I mean, that's the everyday. And so I think it is also, and others of Gordon Wenham and others have said this, it's a polemic against idolatry. Because remember when we looked at the whole, um, Isaiah is a good example is, you know, it's the gods that did not make the, he make the heavens will die. I think there's a contrast between the idols and God being created. So I think that's one of its key functions within the story. Um, and so I don't think it is, it's, it's very, um, it's doing it in a poetic way, but it's also not emphasizing the specifics of the hell. We want to thank you for being here with us, and we have a gift for you. Thank you. We'll let you open that. Is this is scary. There's no um. There's no spiders. There's no spiders in there. <laughs> I I did, I did think of you when I went back to my room last night because there was, there was a black spider. A real one. I love that story about the tissue, by the way. I thought that was just fabulous. Um, 
but no, there was this black spider, and it did remind me when I was when I was growing up in Australia. Our boys sometimes see like a little spider like this, and they go, "Oh, spider, spider!" And I'm like, guys, that is not a spider. I grew up. We had big, fat, furry huntsmen that would come inside, and because my parents divorced, myself, my sister, my mum, someone, because you had to get these things, because otherwise they could turn up somewhere. So it was like this, and I thought about this. I thought about this last night. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? <laughs> and I thought of you. <laughs> so I did. Um, I did get out a cup, and I was ready to do it. And then he kind of ran down. I was like, all right, just forget about him. So, oh, that's so lovely. Very nice. That's beautiful. Look at the wood on it. That little idol? Yeah. <laughs> and you Thanks. can use it to autograph your books. Thank then. you. Yeah. Well, it's been a great blessing. I'm, I am uh, heading off it. Thank you so much. That's lovely. It's been a great blessing to be here. So, so thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you. We want to pray for Carol as she goes off uh, mm. to the rest of her ministry. So let's yes. pray together. Lord, how we thank you for Carol, for her story, for the way you have been there chasing after her because uh, her gifts have really touched us and blessed us, Lord. We thank you for her passion for your word and for the way she can bring it to life. We pray for her now as she is going to be leaving us, going back to her other ministries. We pray for her as she's working on her commentary. Lord, we need good commentaries for our work. And we pray for her work in those ministries of outreach in her neighborhood and in her book group and with all of these folks who don't know what a relationship with you is about yet, but who are curious. And we pray as she prepares to uh, start back at Gordon again in the fall, that you'll be with her in the classroom and as she meets individually with students who need so desperately to uh, be centered in your word. In all of these things, Lord, help her to put you at the very center and not to ever miss it out in her own journey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.